Technicolor Jesus is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Welcome to Technicolor Jesus, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. Today, we talk Spotlight. We go back to Boston, and I'm Adam, and I'm a scholar and minister and writer in Pennsylvania. My name is Matt, and I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And if you're new to the show, here's how it works. We invite guests to the show who pick movies for us to watch. Then we gather as ministers, as theologians, as writers, as journalists, as people who love movies. This week, our guest, Elizabeth Diaz, has asked us to watch Spotlight. And in our first segment today, Justification by Faith, we discuss what Spotlight has to do with theology, journalism, and the world. In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with Spotlight for the lectionary week ahead which will be October 1st, the 17th Sunday of Ordinary Time and World Communion Sunday. Finally, we'll offer up some postludes, preacher thoughts from each of us on something else we're watching or following. But before we begin, let me introduce our guest today. Elizabeth Diaz is a journalist for Time covering politics and religion, and with those two beats, hasn't had much to do over the past year. This week, she wrote the cover story for Time International about the possible ethnic cleansing of the Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar. She's also the editor of the book, What Did Jesus Ask?, which is found wherever quality books are sold. Elizabeth, thanks for being here. It's great to be with you guys. So let's begin. The 2015 movie Spotlight details the Boston Globe's reporting on the Catholic Church's systematic covering up of sexual abuse by priests. Directed by Tom McCarthy, Spotlight won the Academy Award for Best Picture in 2015. And though I treasure Mad Max Fury Road, I think Spotlight deserved its win. In an era of movies where the stakes seem manufactured and the violence needless, Spotlight feels a little bit like a throwback. It's a movie about reporters wearing out their shoes, searching for answers. No bullets, no showdowns, no death threats, just a slow, systematic uncovering of the truth. The obvious progeny of All the President's Men, Spotlight takes on its own personality by exchanging one massive institution for another, the federal government for the Roman Catholic Church. It also does an admirable job showing us the stakes of silence by our institutions. The movie really shines when the reporters are forced to wrestle with questions of truth, failure, and complicity. Now, Elizabeth, as a reporter who covers religion and politics, this movie seems appropriate. But rather than assume your reasons for choosing this movie, I'll let you talk. What draws you to the movie and why might it matter for folks? Thank you. Well, I, of course, saw the movie when it came out and then watched it again recently. And it's been on my mind um, at, a lot in the last year, especially as um, America as a country is thinking a lot about the role of the media um, in how we understand truth and how we seek truth and what true stories really are and what that really means. So I covered um, 
the religion and politics intersections of the 2016 presidential campaign. And this was something that uh, this, this tension about what the role of journalists really is came up all the time, right? And especially as conversations about fake news and real news came up, um, it became really clear that there, the, there isn't trust um, in the institution of the media. And journalists, um, even, even when you find an actual fact and point out something that is true, uh, that isn't something that is believed. And there's a, like when I speak around the country, I, I get this question a lot about like, why should we trust, um, why should we trust the media when there are different sources um, that have direct lines to people and that uh, have their own narrative that they want to promote? So I think as a country, we're um, and really as 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 a global community, we're in this time of having to choose how we tell truth and how we hear truth and, and who we trust. So uh, I imagine this is a conversation happening uh, in local communities, and that would mean in churches around the country too. Uh, and the church historically, you know, has, you know, it's been around, you know, you think about the Roman Catholic church, there's a reason this institution survives for 2,000 years. Um, and one of those reasons is that it has positioned itself as um, an arbiter of truth and a, a teller of truth. And so um, how that, uh, that can sometimes be questioned or fallible um, really matters uh to people and 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 the media also you know is an institution that you know as you were saying the movie points out like the 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 narrative in the movie is really strong when you see how journalists themselves um haven't always gotten the story right you know and in spotlight um for those of you who've seen it you know that the the journalists uh the editors who ended up really uncovering the story of child sex abuse um, among Catholic clergy, they had had the facts in front of them uh, 20, I think 20 years earlier, at least significantly earlier, and didn't see the story. Or if they did see it, they didn't choose to really go there and um, do the investigative work needed to uncover and expose the truth. So I think this question of um, how we tell truth and then how institutions choose to wield power, those things really, really matter. Right. It's a stunning realization when all of the evidence that they need to make and write this story is found in the walls of the globe, right? Like right. it had all been sent to this place. And at some point they should have seen the story. And, and similarly, like, Everything is in the library of the globe for them to make this story, and everything is in the library of the Catholic Church for them to figure out what's right and what to do. And the the movie holds as a central tension, like you when you have all of the facts, you still have to order them into a narrative that reflects reality. And that's harder than it looks. Um, it actually takes a lot of effort and a lot of time and a lot of courage in order to do that. Matt, as you watch the movie, 
Um, what stood out to you as some of its important theological themes? Well, it circled back to me, and somewhere along the same lines, though it might take me a minute to get there, it circled back to me to a conversation that we had way back on this show about Ghostbusters, uh, which was the, the conversation about the church as a kind of local municipal service. Like the Ghostbusters are out there providing this kind of service to the community and the, the church in some versions of this kind of is doing that that, that parochial model where we're, we're serving the, the local context and the people that are there. And in fact, in this movie, we kind of have two different local municipal services, church and newspaper that are kind of pit against each other. Uh, and, and in some ways, they are both facing some of the same um, ravages of time <laughs> that uh, the church has changed even before this scandal starts in the film uh, and the, the newspaper industry is changing too. So we have the, the Sunday sermon that we hear a glimpse of where the pastor worries about the World Wide Web and then like a shot <laughs> of the Boston Globe building with this huge AOL billboard in front of it. Uh, the, the whole frame of the movie is this opening conversation between uh, Robbie, Michael Keaton's character, and the new publisher in town who says, I want to make this newspaper essential to our readers. And Robbie says, I like to believe that it already is. Um, there's a question of kind of what, what do these institutions have to do, both of them, to be, to be essential and needed as the world is changing around them. And they both kind of failed. I mean, in different respects, clearly, and to different scales. But uh, there's a sense in which, yeah, of course, the church has failed on this colossal scale. Uh, it, it is, but but the the newspaper has failed too, as you already pointed out. And I I think that's what makes the movie work really well for me is the way in which it kind of cuts against its own self righteousness. We're not just called to believe in journalism as an institution. We're called because journalism can also fail. We're called to believe in truth. Uh, and so I, I kept thinking about, in the, in the early part of the 20th century, uh, as the there's a, a, um, a kind of mission statement was written for the social gospel movement called The Great Ends of the Church, which has been included in the Presbyterian Book of Order for a number of years. And one of those uh, great ends of the church is identified as the preservation of the truth. Uh, uh, and it always, I think it throws, it throws folks in my congregations when we talk about this, because it feels like, as Elizabeth was talking about, like the long role of the Catholic Church has been as this arbiter of truth. And is this document claiming that the church is meant to be that arbiter as well? It's kind of weird to consider that this would have come from the lips of actually fairly progressive Christians at the time because um, that preservation feels like a conservative act and truth almost feels like it's been out of fashion in progressive circles. But what I like about it and what it, what it kind of resonates for the movie here with me is like, the, it's a belief in truth as like an abstract concept, as a force, as something that still matters, that comes like inevitably and irrefutably, that it takes work, but it's, but it's there. I, and I, I actually, I found that really comforting. Uh, even as the movie kind of ravaged me, I found the that insistence very comforting, especially in 2017. So I, I think Can I the, jump in? yeah, jump in. One of the things I was really struck by was the lawyer um, Garabedian in the movie who represented victims um, and their families. And one of his his lines was, um, 
you know, when, they, when they're talking about, you know, why didn't the Globe see this story for a while? Uh, and, and he says, you know, it takes an outsider to see the truth. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that it, it's not that these two institutions, the media and the church, are on the same moral equivalency. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't agree with that. Um, I think in one case, the church was actively trying to cover up something that was true and to hide it. And another institution just didn't see it at the time. And then when it did see it, went after it and sought the truth, right? So I, I want to be very careful not equating them in that way. Um, but this idea that an outside voice is needed to come in um, and to expose truth and to be able to see something more clearly, I found that to be very provocative, right? I mean, that is probably as close to, to a prophetic voice as one hmm. could get. I agree. I think the the movie is setting up both of these institutions as capable of forces for good and or evil. Or, I mean, in the same way that I think, like, theology of the 20th century, for instance, Reinhold Niebuhr would say, like, we shouldn't automatically put our faith in institutions, whether that institution is a newspaper or whether it's the church itself. Sure. Because the the possibility for the, these places to believe themselves the arbiter of truth and go awry is always present. Moreover, uh, to your point, Elizabeth, I think that what's interesting about the journalists in this movie is that they still feel the weight of the question that comes at the very end, which is what took you so long without letting that be a totally debilitating question in their search, right? Which I I feel like has the the ring of of true humility, which is to say they are a part of Boston. They are part of the social fabric of a particular community. They themselves recognize themselves as a spotlight, as as a place, uh, as a a group of people who can shine light so that the world might see truth. And— to the extent that they do that, they're proud of it. To the extent that they fail to do that, they also feel the complicity in it. And I feel like that's a very human and humble way for a group of people to look and to feel. Um, and it's something that I f- wish more clergy wrestled with. And they, and the clergy in this movie don't actually wrestle with that. No. Which right. is, there's, there's never a moment where the clergy wrestle with what took you so long. Right. Um, and I, and I wish they did. Um, there's a couple of points in the movie too where the the journalists actually are serving the function the social function of the clergy which is to say there are these moments where they're taking statements from the victims of the sexual abuse scandal in Boston and each time the victims are saying do you really want to hear this and in some ways they become the confessor mm-hmm. for these people and and they stand in for the priests who couldn't do it, right? And in that way, I find, like, it's not as if the journalists are overreaching from their social role, but they are filling a need, a very fundamental and important need for the social fabric of, of a place. And in that way, they do serve uh, as the necessary, humble, priestly role that a society needs. And... And, this, and the, the movie doesn't let them totally get away with being altruistic and noble, but neither does it, you know, want to see them as sort of damned by their ignorance earlier in their lives. Elizabeth, as 
you watch this movie and in the day-to-day work that you do, are there places where it sort of rang true as someone who's both trying to uncover the truth, but recognizing that perhaps the world, the audience, the reader doesn't want to hear your <laughs> truth? Yes. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, well, one, um, I mean, I, I've, so I've covered everything from presidential campaigns to have spent a couple of years really just doing Vatican coverage um, and then religion and society coverage in the U.S. And um, I have found that covering the Vatican um, and then covering religious institutions, right? I've done it. I did. I remember doing a series of um, articles about Wheaton College and Illinois Evangelical School um, when they uh, had a um, what essentially became a, a a huge national story about um, a professor, their only uh, black female uh, tenured professor, who made a statement in support of Muslims and then ended up essentially getting forced out of the school. Um, and so between that and watching Vatican, how the Vatican operates, I mean, religious institutions I have found to be some of the absolute most difficult mm. to deal with in terms of obtaining facts uh, because there, and there can be many reasons for this, but um, it's, it has seemed to me that the, the narrative matters so much sometimes to them. Um, uh, but getting, you know, journalism is described sometimes as getting the best possible obtainable version of the truth. And you can, uh, you can argue all you want about how to connect, connect the facts and, you know, draw different constellations between them, but you only can, you know, there's one set of facts and, uh, that's why uncovering that them matters so much because new data points can radically change how something is understood. Um, and then the other thing, and you asked that question, I've been thinking a lot about how uh, the past presidential campaign uh, and especially uh, white evangelical support for now President Trump uh, has been interpreted by all sorts of people uh, throughout the campaign and through his almost now first year in office. But uh, the, I, I'm, this is recalling to me a line from the movie when uh, they were deciding whether or not, the, when the, post, the, the Boston Globe was deciding whether or not to su- uh, sue to unseal documents, legal documents um, that the church had essentially buried. And that, you know, had to decide, are we going to sue the Catholic Church? And uh, the publisher said, you know, I think it was the publisher. Somebody said, uh, do you understand what this is going to do in this town? Like, you know, 53 percent of Boston is Catholic. They are not going to like that. And that is our subscriber base. I mean, the financial um, stakes were enormous for the Boston Globe to do this. And that is something like the. As I'm watching now, how uh, religious communities in the U.S. are responding to hard stories about the the White House and the president um, when when new things are uncovered that are unpopular, um, 
that, you know, the, the reaction has been often, you know, don't trust instead of turn to exit, to question oneself or to question one's community or to be open to the possibility of something not fitting into your narrative. Um, and so then we're seeing things like increased reliance on um, openly sectarian or openly, you know, quote unquote, um, you know, evangelical publications or Christian publications or Catholic publications, right? Something where there is something beyond just the facts and the truth itself that people want to or say that they can trust instead of that. Um, and so it's a very divided. I mean, we're not united based on reality uh, at all. I mean, reality is dividing more than ever. I think what's really interesting is that as reality is getting divided, the standards that publications are held to to produce something that counts as truth go up. And I think that this movie begins to show that there are these moments where they have to decide, do we publish now or do we wait? Do we publish now or do we wait? And they keep waiting so that they can have a maximum effect. But they, every one of the reporters seems to know that in this waiting, they continue to endanger more lives and that it's a very hard moral equation. And so that when the standard goes up, to be understood as truth, we actually endanger people. And, and I'm wondering, like, how do we, how do we, as a larger society, face that very difficult, um, that very different, difficult qualification that we've laid upon people that we asked to speak truth? And moreover, like, is that fair to the vulnerable among us? Um, well, and then on top of that, uh, the current media environment is that speed and, you know, the re speed is, is tantamount. I mean, it's or paramount. It's like it just matters more than anything. Um, and being first on a story is sometimes becoming more important than being right. Uh, and, you know, when the metrics for financially, right, when the financial stake is you know, how many clicks does something get? How much engagement does it have on your website? How much are people sharing it? Uh, and then um, that, you know, imagine if that had happened. Ma imagine if this story, it's impossible to imagine today's media environment, like what that would have done to um, mo most likely to the, to the, you know, the, the timeline of publishing for the globe then. Yeah, I mean, I, there is, I mean, I don't know how they would have handled that. There is some sense of that competition with how the Herald plays in this movie and the way that they're trying to get to press first. And but but I do think I, I never felt like I was more in a kind of throwback film than at the very end when you see the shots of the newspaper on the presses, which. Mm -hmm. uh, is the kind of narrative climax of old journalism movies where once we've once the story has gone to bed then we've achieved the thing that we set out for but it seems like 16 15 16 years later i mean in and the and then in the original story it does kind of work i mean it does throw the boston church into scandal it does dismantle a number of the places of hierarchy and bureaucracy, it has this wide ranging effect. 
but it, it, it makes me wonder how that story about journalism's search for truth plays out now. Uh, because, you know, it's as you've pointed out, it's not necessarily enough to write now a true story. It, it gets lost in a landscape that is divided and doesn't always want to hear it. And it seemed like part of the reason that the story works here in the film is this implication that kind of everybody already knew it was true. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, okay. they, they expect protests, but instead they get calls saying, also me, this is also my story. Yeah, that's the most profound part of the movie to me is that at the end, it's not just that the newspaper goes out into the world. It's that mm -hmm. it solicits a response of also me. Um, right. Like, I think you're that's such an important point, Matt. No, so, I completely agree. Because there's a difference between. So you ask about, like, what does it mean to shine the light on something and to reveal something? And I think I don't think this movie is in some ways exactly doing that. I mean, it is because they're putting the story together. They're putting the facts together. They're assembling the record. And that is incredibly important. But I, I do think there's this undercurrent, like everybody already knows it. And they're just, well, we've guess, kind of all agreed not to talk about it. And that yeah. makes it have this traction uh, that I wonder about with the stories that we don't know or the stories we actively don't want to know. Hmm. Well, it gets at the power of just naming something. Yeah, sure. And that, um, you know, being able, there is no substitute. I mean, the most powerful stories are the ones when something is just actually named and seen clearly. And not confused by all these things that distract um, or hide actual facts. And those are so technically difficult to do. I mean, and I, I really appreciated the process, actually, of them showing yeah. along the different ways how hard it is. Because mm -hmm. it is true, especially when you're doing that level of investigative work, that, um, you know, that bigger goal could end up being undercut. Um, and in the whole project undermined um, without that editorial guidance at the top, right? I mean, that, the, um, that was invaluable for the effect. Well, I don't think we've exhausted this movie and its themes. Uh, it's such a rich and, and manifold text, uh, and we could continue to talk about it. But let's move on to our lectionary week. But before we do that, uh, we are grateful for our partnership with the Christian Century, and we want to guide your attention to some of the great work they're doing. Today, I want to reach back into the archives of the Century to pull out something that I found that's so lovely and beautiful. Uh, Reinhold Niebuhr used the pages of the Century to talk about just about anything he wanted. As you come back through the archives, you'll see that the editor of the Century would give him as many inches as he wanted, and he frequently took all of them. Uh, that said, after his death, his wife, who was a, a scholar in her own right and the head of the religion department at Barnard, wrote a little bit for the magazine as well. And I want to point you to an article by Reinhold Niebuhr's widow, Ursula, called Letters to Reinhold, Eating Dill Pickles in Paradise. She takes this little appetite of Reinhold's and spends it into something really quite rich and lovely. And it's totally worth reading. Uh, you can find a link to it on our show page. I will also post a really interesting article by Rebecca Miles that takes seriously Ursula Niebuhr as the co-author to some of Reinhold's most famous works. So if you aren't listening to, uh, if you aren't a subscriber to The Century yet, 
Technicolor Jesus listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. That's christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. All right, moving on. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir, and it's where we look at the lectionary passages for October 1st, the 17th Sunday of Ordinary Time. This is Moses strikes the, wa- the rock and water breaks forth. Ezekiel has a difficult oracle for Israel. There's the kenosis hymn in chapter 2 of Paul's letter to the Philippians. And Jesus has some frank words with the Pharisees in Matthew's gospel. Matt, as you watch Spotlight and as you think about some of its themes, where is it intersecting with the lectionary for this week? Well, I think there's a few different places, but the one that first jumps out to me is this Exodus text. Uh, We're in chapter 17. Exodus, the the kind of central story arc of Exodus has these three major wilderness miracles in it in three successive lectionary weeks. So first, the parting of the Red Sea, and then the manna that comes down in the wilderness, and now it's the water from the rock. And so I think if we focus on the miracle here, we're kind of missing the point. We're kind of done miracles by now in Exodus. I think the story isn't the miracle. I think it's the accountability. So the problem in this text is that the people don't trust Moses. They're complaining because all of these stories start with the people complaining. And, And the complaint here is that he keeps talking to God on his own. He keeps having these miracles happen that are individual encounters between him and God. And so the problem is that we kind of have to open up that priestly relationship so that it's God and Moses and also the people. And so the move that this story takes is that we bring in some elders. God says Moses, God says to Moses, take some of the elders of Israel with you. And so he goes and he strikes the rock and water pours out from it. But again, I don't think for me, the story isn't the water. It's the elders that are there as witnesses. It's actually the place in scripture where we inaugurate the philosophy of distributed governance that will stick with Israel up through the time of Judges and until the coronation of Saul. And and so I think this theology is really important. And it's not just because I come from a denomination that has an endless number of committee meetings. It's, it's, <laughs> it's because like we believe that the truth of who God is and how God acts isn't just from one from God to one priestly person, it's to all people. It's not a secret, right? And to me, this is like right at the heart of one of the things that Spotlight is doing. It's 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 opening up that relationship because we're distrusting naturally and importantly the the ways in which theology or God or religion or church are handled in secret. We're distrusting the play things that happen behind closed doors. This is a text that's super anxious about closed doors. So we say, take some of the elders with you. And it's the first step in creating good, healthy church communities. Uh, and I, so I, I think, you know, there's some pretty, um, for me, that's some pretty clear connections that are, that are helpful to wrestle with. So Elizabeth, as you, um, as you work in journalism, how does this movie change if, it's just one person seeking the truth. Because I think with Matt's comments and this idea that like this work is collaborative, how do you see your work as a sort of collaborative search for the truth rather than just one person's search for the truth? Well, I was just thinking about what Matt was saying about the role of the elders. Um, and as I've been thinking, you know, when you guys have mentioned the lectionary text, I'd already been thinking about this idea of the role of the outsider um, that Spotlight 
really highlights and brings up, you know, it takes an outsider to see the truth. Uh, and, you know, Matt, you were just pointing out a, a great uh, uh, connection to that I hadn't even thought about with the, um, <clears throat> with the Moses and the elders and the, the text, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the text for the Gospels is also sort of about Jesus coming as an outsider to communities that were there and how uh, he was challenging or pushing the um, expected norms of the day of the religious leaders. So I think um, that's it. That's, uh, I think it's probably easy sort of 2000 years after a story, for example, with Jesus has been told to think like, oh, well, Jesus was always there. Um, but this idea of like change happened because people started listening to an outsider uh, is, is really significant. I yeah. I mean, and, and the idea that there are, there are a number of outsiders on that team, which is pretty interesting. So where, um, the Mark Ruffalo character, Resendis, um, like he, he's Portuguese and Boston has a, a very interesting, well, the Cape especially has a very interesting Portuguese history, but really Boston and the machine there is run by Italians and, and, um, and the Irish. And so he, he sort of is a, is an outsider, but we also get Marty Baron who shows up as the new editor of the paper and he keeps pressing them for to go deeper and to go deeper. And he himself is the outsider, right? It, the, the movie takes great pains to show you how he is an outsider as a Jewish man. And as someone who's never worked in Boston, which is pretty parochial. So over and over again, you keep getting these outsiders and it's only when like, um, Robbie, who is this sort of consummate insider, right? His like went to BC high and, um, <laughs> and still knows everybody in Boston in the Catholic world. Um, it's when his inside status to open doors, he ends up opening doors for the outsiders to come in and look. And so they have this sort of collaborative moment where they get to do good work together and they both have their own particular superpower to help uncover the truth. Also because they start appealing to a different higher power here, which is the city of Boston itself. Uh, right. So, so like, it, yeah, you get both the outsider and the insider between Marty and Robbie. I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. But one of the ways in which those conversations between Robbie and the folks at the high school and the folks in the diocese work is that he starts playing on, like, uh, you know, what is what does Boston deserve? <laughs> what does Boston need? What is best for Boston? And it's it's at some point it's not the preservation of one of Boston's institutions, i.e., the diocese. At some point, it's the truth about what has happened here. With the, what is, as we've already talked about, but it has this appeal to the city as a kind of higher order uh, that I found really kind of interesting. Right. Well, and um, th this idea of. Um... So there's there's two moments in the movie. One when Cardinal Law uh, is meeting Marty Barron, the the new editor of the Globe, for the first time. He makes a point of saying, "I'm of the opinion that our city flourishes best when its great institutions work together." Yeah. And Marty, great editor, says, "Actually, I'm of a different opinion that." Uh, I can, you know, we can do our job best when we as a paper are independent 
uh, and it's this between that and then later on when Robbie is talking with you know, uh, one of his was it wasn't his friends when he's there he's using his insider knowledge of the city and of the church to try to figure out something that they hadn't been able to get yet. And then Ravi says, you know, is this why we're really here to get on the same page? Like we're not like, and it, there's this, the, it points out in both these cases, how conflict is really important and, and productive. And that, um, and in, in both of these, or at least in several of the lectionary stories, there's, you know, the goal was, not about getting on the same page, right? I mean, it was it was about um, what happens in this moment of conflict and how is that handled, and then what the outcome, and then, then that can yield a productive outcome if unexpected. What about you, Adam? Were there some texts that popped up for you, or some connections that popped up for you? Uh, yeah, I was I was drawn to the the psalm. Um, there are two psalms actually in this lectionary week. Um, the Psalm 78, which is this hymn of remembrance, um, and it's put in the lectionary ostensibly because it's about remembering God's good deeds in the wilderness as the Israelites exit Egypt. But what intrigued me was that this admonition to remember the mighty deeds of God uh, also have within the lines, and though they're never mentioned, all of these moments of deep trouble. Uh, moments of terrible anxiety and pain. And I think what Spotlight does really well is show us how the remembrance of the past, a true remembrance of the things that happen um, and the stories we tell ourselves about deliverance always have within them some moment of trauma, something to be delivered from. Mm. And to ignore that portion of the story is to not really tell the truth. Um, indeed, to like sing a real hymn of deliverance, we have to have witnessed the bondage from which we're delivered. And back to that moment where both of the reporters are saying, look, tell it to me straight. Don't give me euphemisms. Don't give me code. Right. Give me the straight story. What happened to you? And this makes the victims very uncomfortable for a variety of reasons. But What's present there is that if you're going to tell this story, you cannot be afraid of the truth. Because, um, and so they look at the worst the world has to offer. And I think the best remembering that happens in scripture and in our own lives doesn't sanitize or deodorize all of the trauma that's involved there, but recognizes that the trauma and the deliverance are, um, are, built together. Um, and moreover, this willful forgetting is inhuman. Um, it's a sin. It's um, something that ultimately hides the past from those in the present. Um, and there are all sorts of people who forget in this movie. And when they finally remember, it's pretty painful. But the remembering is necessary, ultimately, to tell the true story and to tell stories of deliverances. So I, I was thinking about Psalm 78 as this hymn of remembrance of God's mighty deeds, but also realizing that if we're going to like tell these stories, we can't leave out the bad parts about our lives. Yeah, and I think actually the Ezekiel text kind of pairs interestingly with that. It's playing with this old uh, Israelite proverb about how the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth get set on edge, 
which is a, a proverb that Israel tells itself when it wants to blame its ancestry for its current problems. Um, I mean, I, this is pretty familiar to me as a member of the institutional church because we like to blame uh, boomers or previous uh, oh, uh, generation it. folks or like any of the ancestors, <laughs> ancestors that came before for whatever the current it's, plight of the church is. Yeah, it's uh, my love language. Yeah. I'm just so good at it. Uh, I mean, polit politics doesn't know anything about right, that. Right, yeah, sure. <laughs> so. But, like, God is so done with this proverb, right? Like, God is done with it and is like, look, you've got to take some accountability for your own stuff. And and you've, you've got to recognize that, like, the sins we're talking about aren't sins of yesterday. They're sins of now. And I think the movie does some interesting threading with that. The most for me is that image of the lawyer reading the story on the front page and then walking into the meeting with the new victims. That's like, this stuff is ongoing. It keeps going. It's not like an external history that now we have learned to remember accurately. It's, it's a problem perpetuated because of the ongoing blindness that we have intentionally cultivated. Uh, this kind of everybody knows and nobody did anything. So I, I, I think that's one of the ways in which I, I really resonate with this connection is it's not just a movie about bringing other people to justice. It's about kind of recognizing our ongoing systemic faults. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that Ezekiel is, is pushing. I think you're right, Matt. And I think it also begins to tie in with Jesus question and Matthew, which I think is appropriate for the movie too, which is, was this from heaven or was this of the world? Right. And, um, I think Jesus is using this to make a larger point, but I want to just stay with that question for a second, which is for so many of the abuse, they were caught in the grips of exactly this question. If, if this person is God, as people say over and over again in the movie, like the priest, why didn't I say anything? Well, the priest is, is as God to me. Um, what does that mean? But if it's from her earth, then how will that play with everyone else who believes that the priest is already God? Um, and it's such a tricky and sort of stuck moment to be in. And I wonder how, like, the moment when the, well, it's a stuck moment for the clergy, too. Because on the one hand, I think that this movie really unveils the, the, the terrible power that comes with clericalism. Mm which is to say, when you are imbued with the power of God, it feels great, and it is so dangerous. Um, and one of the essential and insidious temptations of all of ministry is to believe you are God. But I think what's also play in this movie is the other essential temptation in an essential and insidious temptation in ministry, which is to believe you can do your work without God. And you see that as a group of people who believe themselves to be priestly continue to engage in acts that are deplorable. Um, so I think Matthew's gospel and Jesus in it is, is getting to the heart of, of something very serious about what it means to be a minister who has power but may not have the necessary faith to use that power well. 
Well, I think on that note, we are probably at time and time for us to move on. Unfortunately, that means saying goodbye to Elizabeth. Thank you so much, Elizabeth, for taking the time to be with us. Again, Elizabeth Diaz is a correspondent for Time Magazine writing about religion and the world. And uh, you can read her new piece in Time International on the ongoing situation in Myanmar on the shelves right now. Thanks, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for um, having me. Now it's time for our last segment. This is called Postludes, and it's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. But before we jump into this, Matt, I have to ask, we watched a, a Boston movie. There are so many good Boston movies. Give me your three favorite Boston movies and another reporter movie that you love. Three favorite Boston movies. There are a lot of good Boston movies, but they all seem to kind of, I was thinking about this, so many of them kind of revolve around the same tropes. So, like, you know, the ones I would love would be, like, Goodwill Hunting, Mystic River, The Departed, maybe The Fighter. It's all, like, movies that have some combination of Matt Damon, Marky Mark, and uh, uh, ben, Affleck. Um, ben Affleck in them. Uh, and, like, Spotlight is in there, but it's, like, the it's like the exception to the rule. Uh, yeah. I've, Do you I've see tried, Gone Baby Gone? I did see it. It's the same genre. They're all this, like, It's the same of, genre. It's I like, just prefer it's like this, it. Like, I think it's great. It's, there's this kind of, like... Uh, like kind of like South Boston crime mob genre thing that Goodwill Hunting is even almost a part of, even though it's not a crime movie, it's got that Southie identification in it really strongly. Um, and so I, yeah, I mean, I still love Goodwill Hunting. Like I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a Goodwill Hunting fanboy, so I would probably pick that one out of the of the pack. And it does something a little bit different. It's trying to do Southie and Cambridge, which yeah, I yeah. think actually works in. For people who live in Boston, that makes sense. Yeah, I watched that movie again when Robin Williams died, and it totally worked on me. I mean, so I, I, I still, I'm still kind of a fan of that. What about you? Uh, yeah, I think that that Goodwill Hunting's on there. I love Gone Baby Gone. I think it's a, probably the best of that genre. I don't prefer The Departed. Um, I think it's kind of boring. And, um, and I there's a there's an old Boston gangster movie called The Friends of Betty Coyle that I love. That I think is just superlative. And as far as reporter movie, His Girl Friday is top of the pack, man. Yeah, I mean, a really substantial movie. Uh, I mean, it's a little lame to say Citizen Kane. I feel like Citizen Kane is kind of one of the paradigmatic reporter movies. And yeah. what I love about it is that it doesn't end with a montage about newsreels. <laughs> right. And it has a more exactly. complicated relationship to the effect of truth then these movies were like the victory is that just we have told the story without any questions about what the effect of that story has. But I still love all the president's men to be sure. It's I'm glad that we got another dose of a Bradley in here. Would you rather be played by John Slattery or Jason Robards? I mean, I think probably John Slattery. Like, I really? feel like, yeah. Cause he's just, he's just got cool. Either. Yeah, he's really good in this movie too. You know, the Bradley family's doing fine. But my my you favorite know? my favorite narrative about journalism is clearly the '90s sitcom News Radio, though. And so, I would, <laughs> ideally, I would be played by Phil Hartman. Okay, that's fine. Uh, so let's let's get to our postludes, Matt. What's your postlude for the week? Is it News Radio? It's not. It should have been. But it's. I think it has been in the past. I, I think if we comb through the archives, we would find News Radio represented somewhere. It's 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 not impossible. Uh, I'm actually less obsessed with that with that show than the last 30 seconds would lead you to believe, dear listener. Okay, 
So my postlude is uh, Spotlight is kind of a movie about kids telling their parents that they don't go to church anymore. Uh, especially Rachel McAdams' interaction with her grandmother. Uh, and it, they have this kind of, there's this confessional moment where the reporters talk about how they're all lapsed Catholics, which is clearly like uh, something that's gone on before the sex scandal. It's, it's generational. It's not just a result of this malfeasance. Uh, it brought up for me some similar work in what I think is the summer's best movie, which is now on iTunes, which is Kumail Nanjiani's The Big Sick. Uh, some of our listeners may have seen it, but for those who haven't, I want to commend The Big Sick to you with my whole heart. Uh, this the movie is the real story of comedian Kumail Nanjiani from Silicon Valley and his now wife, Emily Gordon, who's played by Zoe Kazan. It's like the romantic comedy that starts with their meet cute, but then it gets encumbered by a couple of things. One of them is the cultural expectations of both of their sets of parents. A religion plays pretty heavy for Kumail's Pakistani family, who has been setting him up on very chaste dates with all of these potential prearranged marriages. Uh, and then, of course, we get the other encumbrance, which is the titular big sick of the movie, in which Emily falls into an unexpected coma. And Kumail has to engage with her parents, who are played by Ray Romano and Holly Hunter, both at the top of their game. And Ray and Holly are not thrilled to have their daughter dating somebody of a different cultural background, which means that this is a romantic comedy, but it's also got a lot of drama in it. It's also a film about the kind of unwritten boundaries between us, and it's also a movie about sickness and death and bodies and what matters and what doesn't matter. It's based on their true story, and I loved everything about this thing, and everybody should go watch it. End of rant. Except to ask, Adam, did you see The Big Sick? No, I haven't. Um, it's I'm waiting for a time where I can rent it. I can only buy it on iTunes right now, Okay, and I don't think I'm going to buy it. But um, I'm really looking forward to uh, watching it. Have you seen Crashing by Pete Holmes, the, no, the show on HBO? No, I have not. You've talked about um, it on this. Show. You've definitely talked about crashing on this show before. By yeah, the way. I have. Good. Okay. It's good. Um, but he and apparently he and Kumail Nanjiani are really close. And what I what I like about both of their works is the ways in which religion is taken seriously in their work and sort of mined for humor, but they're not angry about it. Yeah. They seem to recognize its value in their background, even if it's not the sort of driving force of their identity. So I I, I appreciate that in both of both of their comedy. Yeah, absolutely. Adam, what about you? What's your postlude for the week? Uh, so are you familiar with the music of Ralph Vaughn Williams? Does that name mean anything to you? I mean, I, I program music for a church, so yeah. <laughs> right. His name's everywhere in our hymnals. He composed a whole bunch of hymn tunes. He arranged a million hymn tunes. He arranged like all of the hymns in our, uh, in our hymnals. And he wrote harmonies and things. Anyway, he's an important English musician. Uh, and among his most famous compositions is the song, The Lark Ascending. And my wife, Chrissy, told me this story this week, and I, I just really love it, which is that Williams was inspired by George Meredith's poem of the same name, The Lark Ascending. And um, as uh, Ralph Vaughn Williams was vacationing in Margate in Kent, uh, on the day that Great Britain entered the First World War. And so he's there on the coast, and off in the distance are Navy ships engaging in some exercise in preparation for the war. And so he's walking around on these cliffs, and he's looking at birds, and he's thinking of Meredith's poem, and he starts to write melodies in his little notebook 
that are ultimately going to become the Lark Ascending. And in the fear of entering war, a well-meaning British citizen sees William writing things in a notebook on a cliff with Navy ships off in the distance and makes a citizen's arrest sure that he's a spy. If you see something, say something, Adam. Yeah, if you see something, say something. They're so confident that he's a spy compiling notes on the Navy's movement. And I'm taken by this story for a couple of reasons. But the first is how it shows how our deep insecurities begin to narrow our imagination, right? Like we can only imagine the worst when we feel insecure. Uh, But more, I'm also taken by the courage of Williams to like write music about birds as his country's entering a world war. And on the one hand, this might mean that Ralph Vaughn Williams is, is out to lunch and or maybe he has a different set of priorities. And that's what I like to think is like, what type of courage do we need to think this song that I'm about to write is the actual appropriate way for me to meet the insecurities of this day? Maybe his path to peace was writing music. So this week, I want to encourage people to go and listen to Ralph Vaughn Williams' piece, The Lark Ascending, and think of him composing it on a cliff while Navy ships do exercises in the background. That's my post-loop, Matt. Is it possible that our path to peace could be recording this podcast, Adam? That's what I'd like to think so. Okay. I'd like to think we're doing a noble thing. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feel a little better, and I don't even necessarily mean that sarcastically, but I'm not entirely sure. okay so that about wraps it up for this episode we're not quite done yet next week we have another special guest joining us aisha brooks lytle and she's here to tell us about herself and her pick for our next conversation hey adam and matt this is aisha brooks lytle don't forget to watch my favorite mid-90s movie the last supper i can't wait to talk about table hospitality and what it means to gather talk to you soon Matt, Matt, Adam, Adam, I've never heard of this movie before. I don't think I have either, but I, uh, I'm intrigued. Yeah, me too. So let us end with some special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century and also to Garrett Muskowski, the sound wizard who's doing a lot for us right now. Our new music was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, Parsley, Sage, Rosemary, and Funk. Matt. I'm glad that we are saving the world together again today. Thanks for being here, man. Yeah, you too. Thanks, Adam.